This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was home crafted and recorded on October 26th and 28th. Austin Chronicle show. My name is Kim Jones and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. We're just a few days out from Halloween, the very favorite holiday of many of my colleagues at the Chronicle. So in the second half of the program, writer James Scott is going to join me to talk about a local vampire parlor that has risen from the dead and also how horror films help James find a community. But first up, Lena Fisher is here to discuss more earthbound concerns with us, specifically the future of Zilker Park. Hi, Lena. It's good to have you on the show again. Good to be here. So, Lena, Zilker Park, 350-acre park that includes Barton Springs Pool, been around for almost a century. Why are we talking about it right now? Well, in November 2020, they began this sort of unprecedented visioning process for how to preserve that park for Austinites to be able to use and also to preserve the nature in it, which has never been done before. So it's actually a pretty historic moment. And they've gone through this process in the last years where they're basically trying to figure out, there's been a lot of erosion in the park. So over 2 million people visit it a year. So all of those feet are really bad for the natural areas of the park. But also, you know, there's a lot of programming that Austinites love about Zilker. There's ACL, there's a Trail of Lights. So it's sort of about balancing the need for the park to be a cultural hub and also the need to be able to preserve it and the beautiful nature that we enjoy, you know, things like the Greenbelt and the Trail and Barton Springs for generations to come. So the way that they've sort of organized this is they have these community meetings on Zoom and they've had three so far. There's going to be two more. And then they'll, they'll sort of like, you know, lay out their plan. Then they'll give the public a survey. Who is they in this situation? Is this the Parks and Recs Department? Yeah, so the I should have said that first. The Parks Department has hired consultants for different parts of this plan. So they're the organizers, but they've hired Design Workshop to sort of vision the entire plan and then different consultants for different parts of the plan. So, for example, Siglo Group did a report in May for the environmental aspect and the ecological restoration aspect of the plan. And then there's mobility consultants. So it's a really far-reaching vision, I guess you could say. So they've done an intro Zoom meeting in the beginning of the summer in June when they released this plan to the public. Then in August, I think they had the second meeting, which was about programming in the park. And in between these meetings, they've been having in-person pop-ups as well. So over the summer, it was a lot of public pools, you know, places where people from all parts of Austin gather. And they're trying to do it in all 10 council districts as well. They've also done (laughs) outreach efforts with small group discussions, which have been less popular, but basically on like, you know, specific issues that might impact a a particular segment of Austin, like mobility or school programming or things like that. This last one was sort of the focus of the article. You wrote about this in this week's issue of the Chronicle, if anybody prefers to do the reading version. I should have mentioned that at the top. 
So yes, bring us up to the most recent meeting. So yeah, this one was called Design Alternatives. So it was mostly sort of about how to spatially lay out the park in terms of transportation, programming, parking, like any sort of physical changes we're going to make to the park. The central conflict here is how, you know, everybody who's been to Zilker, especially on a weekend, knows it's almost impossible to park there. You know, if you park on the lot across from Barton Springs Road, it's kind of hard to cross Barton Springs. It's a busy road. If you're trying to get there without a car, it's nigh impossible. There's only one bus route, uh, Route 30, that takes you there. You know, there's the mobility challenge where people are trying to figure out how can we make it easier for everybody to get there. And then there's the intra-park mobility challenge where, you know, we have two trails, the Violet Crown Trail and the Butler Hike and Bike Trail. They're thinking about connecting those, trying to figure out ways for bikes to traverse the park, you know, within it without destroying the natural areas. And then that brings me to the second concern, which is with so many people visiting the park, how do we preserve the nature and like prevent things like overflow parking, like right by the polo fields, there's a lot of parking on the grass, which really contributes to erosion. So that was sort of what this plan was about at this last Zoom meeting. So that's the Zilker Park vision plan. And then interstage left is a competing vision plan. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say they're completely at odds. There's a lot of similarities and overlaps. They just go a little bit farther in terms of ecological preservation. So what's this one called and who's backing this one? It's called the Rewilding Zilka Park for People and something else. (laughs) But it's backed by Save Our Springs Alliance and also the Zilker Park Neighborhood Association or the Zilker, sorry, Neighborhood Association. So I mean, there's a lot of overlap there. The two main leads, uh, one of them is Robin Rather, who is the environmental lead for the Neighborhood Association, but she also was on the board of Save Our Springs before Bill Bunch, the current executive director. So there's overlap there. So their plan is responding sort of to the Siglo Group's plan, the consultant that was hired by the city that released their plan in May. Um, And they have a lot of overlap, like I said. So Before you launch into sort of the distinctions between the two, can you define rewilding, which is just like the greatest word? Yes. (laughs) The way that Elizabeth McGreevy described it to me, and this is the person who authored the rewilding plan, she's an ecologist. She said, rather than restoration, which is building back up nature that's been degraded and, you know, doing things like planting rain gardens and swales, and it requires a lot of irrigation and human maintenance. Rewilding, on the other hand, is just sort of letting nature do its thing. And I'm quoting her there. So it's less effort. It's less expensive. It takes longer. In her view, more sustainable and efficient. The rewilding plan. The similarities are a lot. So both agree that parking is the biggest threat to the park right now. So they want to reduce overflow parking. There's a plan that the city and the consultants have agreed upon and launched in the last meeting, which is, I think, really interesting, which is a concept of using the surrounding businesses and buildings and parking lots and structures as sort of like shared parking for Zilker as well, because the surrounding businesses, you know, their peak hours are weekdays and Zilker, it's the opposite. So it's uh, weeknights or weekends. So you know, ideally we can share the same space at different times of day. And so they both agree with the shared parking concept. They also agree that one of the biggest areas that needs ecological uplift, as they term it, is Barking Springs. So the free side of Barton Springs is really, really degraded because so many people 
visit it. And there's been basically no formal ecological stewardship of that area. So that's like an urgent place that needs to be restored. And then the third thing that they agree on is tree canopy. Yeah, one of the best ways to, number one, reduce heat. And number two, sort of like sequester water in the ground is by planting trees. So not only would this make more shade for people to be able to enjoy the park, but it would also, the roots would sort of hold the dirt together. So right now, the ecologist told me that there are some trees that have been there for you know decades that are so, the ground is so eroded and the soil is so loose from all the feet trampling it that the roots are exposed and they're actually in danger of toppling the trees in the next couple of years. So both reports agree on those things. The main way that they diverge is upon sort of how much of the park they want to preserve as just wild natural area and how much they want to make parking lots or trails or, you know, for human use, basically. In the Siglo report, which is the city commissioned one, they want to leave 49 acres wild. In the rewilding report, they bump that up to 75 acres. 21% of the entire park, yes. Entire, okay. But they do make the distinction that, you know, a lot of this rewilded area is called open woodland. So even though there would be more trees planted and they would not mow certain areas, some of these areas would actually be mowed and they would have like picnic tables under them so that people would be able to use those areas as well. And I think that's addressing like a criticism that people have of the rewilding vision, which is, you know, people aren't going to stop coming to Zilker and like, what are you going to do about ACL and all this stuff? Like the whole thing can't be completely wild. So is it premature in the process to know what kind of an impact this would have on visitors? Whichever plan they go with, how long is it going to take? Does it mean that parts of the park will be shut off for months or years at a time? Or is it too early to say? It is too early to say. And that's another sort of like conflict that's been brought up recently is, you know, there have been three meetings so far. There are only two left before the city and the consultants create their final draft plan and then submit it to council. This whole thing is supposed to be over by next summer and implemented. You know, the implementation process should start by like June-ish. So this rewilding group, you know, Save Our Springs and the Neighborhood Association, they expressed to me that they were concerned about how little detail there's actually been shown so far. So you know, the city has sort of posited different ideas for mobility and programming and things like this. But they've never really given a comprehensive sort of like map of exactly what would change and or a timeline of like how it would be implemented. So the next meeting is called, I think, something like park plans. So, you know, we can expect probably more specificity there. But to date, there's no real timeline other than for when the final plan should be released. When is this next meeting? Where are we in the process? How can listeners sort of jump in at this point and really start tracking what's going on? The city and the Parks Department have been really aggressive about community engagement, and there's a lot of ways that you can get involved if you want to. The first way is if you want more information, you can go to the website, which is austintexas.gov slash And there you can find where the next in-person pop-ups are in your council district, And you can also find recordings of past presentations and you can take surveys. So you can, you know, they'll ask you questions about how you would like the park to be programmed and, you know, which parts of it you would like to remain wild. So the last survey they released is actually really detailed about that specific part of it. 
And I think that's really worth emphasizing that everybody involved wants more than just the input of people who live directly around Silker Park, because the park is for everyone in Austin and beyond. Yeah. Even if you don't live next door and you only go out once or twice a year, your opinion is valid here too. Yeah. That's a big priority for them for sure. And it's been difficult, I think, because a lot of things are virtual. So like a certain contingent is only aware of when there's a Facebook live happening or something. But I think that's why those pop-ups are really important. And especially when they do them in the park itself, because then people who come there can just, you know, see what's going on. Well, if you want to hear more about this, you can also pick up this week's issue of the Austin Chronicle and check out Lena's story. Lena, thank you so much for coming on and explaining this process to us. Yeah, thank you. So we are going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a minute. Don't go anywhere. to the Austin Chronicle show on co-op community radio. We've entered the spooky portion of the program in honor of Halloween, which is happening on Sunday. And I believe my next guest is a particular fan of the holiday, James Scott. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. James, in this week's issue, you write about the resurrection of the glass coffin, which bills itself as a vampire parlor. And already I'm like, a what? Um, So please explain to us what exactly a vampire parlor is. So the glass coffin is a vampire themed oddity shop. They sell not just vampire stuff, but also like movie memorabilia and apothecary stuff. So like occult stuff as well. But one of the really exciting things is in this new location, which is a bit bigger, the owner, Joey Slane, actually has put in a vampire parlor with like chairs and all of those velvet drapes and everything and a seance room. So it's really a place for people who enjoy vampire culture or maybe more goth culture to sort of come and celebrate that. So you say the new location, there's a story there, a pandemic story that was really sad and then has a happy ending. Yeah. So the glass coffin used to be on a piece of property off of South First, along with another oddity shop, Curia Arcanum. And around the time of the pandemic, when it started last year, their landlord sold the property and gave them like 30 days to vacate. So basically, dreams were dead because both brick and mortars were closed. So the owner of the glass coffin was sort of keeping it alive on Instagram. And eventually, after 
meeting his partner who goes to university here, he decided to stay in Austin. They found a new location, a house that was available off of North I-35, pretty close to actually where the Chronicle offices are. And when I went to interview the owner, they had just started on the outdoor decorations. But since then, they've updated on their Instagram that the entire house is painted black. There's all sorts of like spooky accoutrement in the lawn. And the insides are like incredibly decorated. They gave themselves a deadline of October 1st after they like put down the down payment from a GoFundMe that they started and like just went bonkers decorating the whole place. You've painted a little bit of a picture, but like really sort of like, let us know what kind of stuff, what's the vibe if you were to go visit? A very direct influence on the interior decor of the glass coffin is the house that the vampire coven lives in, in the TV adaptation of what we do in the shadows. So it has that very elegant vibe where the lighting is really low and what lighting there is, is all very red tinged. A lot of like Victorian accents, drapes, candles, But at the same time, there's also a lot of like fun pop culture elements. Like I I mentioned in my story, he's pretty prominent, but there is a full size Nosferatu in the front. And there's also sort of recreation of the Lost Boys, like big throne chair that Kiefer Sutherland sits in with also the little Chinese food box. It's that great sort of clutter core thing where there's so much going on that all flows together in its eccentricities. Well, I can sort of see your eyes lighting up as you're talking about some of this. And there was something that the owner, Joey Slane, said to you. He said, I'm still that 11-year-old kid obsessed with vampires. And that really struck me is getting at something really elemental. Correct me if I'm wrong, but people don't come to this late in life. Like this is a formative kind of interest in the occult and vampires. And it's just, there's something like really primal, I think. Is that accurate? Do you think? Yeah. Speaking personally, I know that the owner is also a member of the queer community. But speaking as a member of the queer community, one of the things that has always drawn me to horror is that it focuses so much on outsiders and people who are treated differently by society. And whether that's through, you know, the subtext of vampires sort of having to live on the fringes or by, you know, literally having protagonists who are members of marginalized communities, like Night of the Living Dead has a main character who is a Black man, and that was just sort of huge at the time. I think the members of those communities gravitate toward horror because it provides a safe space in a way. And it also is 
digging into just the very human emotion of fear in a way where it's kind of controlled. So you can opt out at any time. But I know personally that a lot of what's going on in the real world can be very scary just based on my experience with my own trans identity and watching horror movies sort of allows me to interact with that fear in a way that it justifies it as well as, you know, presents it in a way that is a little bit more digestible. I love that articulation of why you're drawn to horror. I've never quite heard it put that way. It's not a genre that I have ever been able to, it scares the crap out of me, basically. And I don't want to tangle with those emotions, but I'm so interested to hear why, why it is a safe place to wrangle with things, dread, unease, terror, all of that. Yeah. So I wrote down notes because I knew this question was coming. But one of the other things that I've always really liked about horror and I think is what draws a lot of other people into it is that the horror community is very accepting. Not just that, but it allows you to find a lot of like-minded people. Not even just that you all like horror movies, but like I said, a lot of marginalized identities sort of are drawn to it. One of the main reasons why I ended up sort of figuring out my trans identity was because I got really into the horror movie the animator and ended up trying to search out other people on the internet who liked reanimator and the majority of the reanimator fan base were gay trans men and that was not an identity that i saw a lot in the media or was exposed to a lot and so oh and a lot of things ended up clicking into place. I think that horror can provide a place where it's okay to maybe be a little bit weird because you're with a lot of other fellow weirdos. Sure. This is Stuart Gordon. Is that? Yes. Animator. Okay. I haven't seen this. I'm curious what in particular, were you able to sort of put a finger on what about it spoke to you and unlocked things for you? Well, The actual movie, I don't think, was 100% what unlocked things. It was more interacting with people who had life experiences that I had never been exposed to. But also, Reanimator, I mean, is an entire movie about making new life and sort of creating bodies with science and your own strong will to be really surface level. Its main character is a sort of short, twitchy guy who has to inject strange substances. (laughs) So on a surface level, there's a lot a trans guy can pull from. But I also think any movies that have to do a lot with body horror are often very, very popular with trans people. The podcast that I believe both you and I listen to Blank Check just did an episode on John Carpenter's The Thing, where film and TV critic Emily Gordon, I don't remember all of her last name, but she talked about The Thing being like a trans text as like 
which is a very classic body horror movie. I think it's just bodies really draw the trans people in, especially for horror. It was Emily Vanderwerf, by the way. Emily Vanderwerf. Yes, yes, I know. I could see us both blanking at the exact same yes. time. Well, we're about out of time, but I do have to ask, how are you celebrating Halloween? I'm actually going to Japanese Breakfast's concert for Levitation. Yeah, I'm going with some friends. I'm really excited about it. That sounds great. <laughs> it's not very spooky, but... <laughs> it's not. Like, that sounds like a fun Sunday, but... Uh, yeah, but I'll wear a spooky shirt. There you go. That'll, that'll do it. Well, James, thank you so much for coming on. It was a really interesting story. I really appreciate you sharing some of yourself with our listeners. Yeah. Well, if you want to read... James Scott's profile of the glass coffin and other like-minded sort of Gothic stores around Austin. You can find that in this week's issue of the Austin Chronicle. You can also find tons of Halloween activity that are happening this weekend. Everything from fireworks to the Austin seance. Mexicarte has Viva La Vida Fest. And then the newly reopened Waterloo Park has a Dia de los Muertos celebration. Lots to find. And that is all at austinchronicle.com forward slash events. And that is a wrap for another episode of the Austin Chronicle show. My guests today were Lena Fisher and James Scott. The show was engineered by Bob Daly and Andrew Solon. And Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson wrote our theme music. Let's go out with the reanimator theme by Richard Band. Hope everyone has a safe and happy Halloween. We'll be back next week.